Well, when you look at that, it's episode 73 of the Planet LP podcast. I'm Ted Asragadu. Thanks as always for listening. It's great to have you along for the journey. And maybe you're like me in that you used to watch a series on VH1 called Behind the Music. I was a big fan of that series, even though the stories seem to have a similar narrative arc and kind of went like this. First, there are the early scrappy years of struggle, then a first hit, then fame, money, drugs, sex. Then those things start to have a corrosive effect on the band or an artist. There's infighting. There's people getting ripped off by a manager or a label. There's often a story of infidelity laced in there too. Poor songwriting starts to show up. Fans who have moved on, they do another album and it flops. And then they get dropped by the label. They hit rock bottom. And then the redemption, a second life, and the possibility of a comeback. But what about the countless bands who didn't hit big and were featured on Behind the Music? What about bands like the Joneses, a group whose sound and look was copied by others, and those other bands rode that gravy train to success? Those almost famous stories like the Joneses are the ones that sometimes have lessons for others who are thinking of starting their music career. In this episode, I have the founder of the LA-based rock band, The Joneses. His name is Jeff Drake, and he's the author of the book, Guilty, My Life as a Member of The Joneses, a Heroin Addict, a Bank Robber, and a Federal Inmate. It's published by Hozak Books, and I'll have a link to it on the Planet LP website so you can buy it directly from the publisher. Now, Todd over at Hozak Books, they're out of Chicago. He's been really good about sending me titles that may be featured on Planet LPs. Not all of them make it, but I've had some authors on, like Bill Kopp. He did one called Disturbing the Peace that was about 415 Records and The Rise of New Wave. I had Michael Goldberg on, who wrote a really great book about James Wilsey, who wrote the sort of now the classic guitar riff for the song Wicked Game by Chris Isaac. And that song wouldn't have been anything without that riff. So when I got this book in the mail and I'm looking at it and I'm starting to leaf through it, I thought, ooh, this looks dangerous. And it's got some twists and turns, folks. So Jeff will be on soon to talk about this fascinating rock and roll story. If you'd like to connect with me, just email me at ted at planetlp.com. On the socials, just search for Planet LP on Instagram, Groupie, Twitter, or Facebook. And if you listen to this podcast on the Apple Podcast app, please give Planet LP a review. It helps others find us in the infinite sea of podcasts. Okay, let's go back in time a bit to the early 80s with Jeff Drake from the Joneses. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Planet LP podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me, Chad. Sorry about last weekend. Oh, that's all right. We've had some scheduling conflicts and we finally resolved them. So it's all good now. But we really want to get into this book, Guilty. My life as a member of the Joneses, a heroin addict, a bank robber, and a federal inmate. Now, let's start at the The early years. Let's talk about your years in Orange County and Merced. You were born in 1961. We are about four years apart in age. I was born in 65. But talk about how you got into music and then how you became a musician. Okay. There was music in my house. My dad was a teenager in the 50s, 
And he had a collection of rock and roll 45s from the 50s, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Little Richard, The Coasters. And I loved listening to those records and, you know, miming along to them mm -hmm. and, you know, using a tennis racket like it was a guitar and <laughs> dancing around the house with my brother. You know, I just always listened to music. And then as I got a little bit older, I, I got into Elton John and kind of like the glamour rock that was mm -hmm. coming out of England. And the way that I, when I decided I wanted to become a musician, my mom had taken me to the movies to see the Led Zeppelin movie, The Song Remains the Same. Really? Yeah, Ooh, and when I took you, wow, That's a, you got a cool mom there. <laughs> yeah, she liked Robert Plant because of those tight jeans that he wore. When I saw Jimmy Page, you know, the way he held his guitar and moved around and stuff, and the way he just looked so confident, and uh, I, I just wanted to do that immediately. Wow, wow. So song remains the same. Mom takes you there. So yeah, interesting she, that she you had to take me because I, I wasn't driving yet. So right, I needed to ride. Right. So one of the things that I've noticed, and, and I've I live in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. So you you reference some some things that are kind of near and dear to my heart, like K San Radio, going into oh, Berkeley, yeah. Rasputin Records, and Cream Magazine, which wasn't really a Bay Area magazine so much, but it was certainly ubiquitous and part of my musical education as a as a young boy who became a huge music fan. The thing about K-San, you were living in Merced at the time. So you right. couldn't really get K-San unless you did something <laughs> to get the reception. So what did you do to get K-San? My parents had this console stereo, one of those old mm -hmm. pieces of furniture that had a stereo and a TV built into it. There was some cable coming out of the wall. And I don't know if it was, you know, that was before cable TV. I think it was actually for um, the uh, antenna on top of the house. Right. I connected that to the console stereo. And I was able to get KSAN. And, you know, for anybody that doesn't know, I don't think there was ever a radio station like KSAN, especially in the late 70s before they got sold and changed. But that was pretty much between that and Cream was my musical education was KSAN and, uh, and Cream Magazine. Yeah. And so KSAN, for those listening outside of California and the Bay Area, was a freeform radio station. They played whatever they wanted to play. You know, I went to high school in Merced, and for anybody that doesn't know, it's about 100, maybe 100 miles southeast of San Francisco, middle of the Central Valley, very agricultural. Mm -hmm. And so I would listen to KSAN, and like, you know, they played the Ramones' first album when it first came out, stuff like that. But there was no way to buy those records in Merced. You'd have to go to San Francisco or L.A. or someplace and buy the imports if you wanted to, you know, have that record and uh, you really had to seek it out. It's not like nowadays where everything's on the internet and you can mm -hmm. listen to anything you want, anytime you want. If you're really into that music, like, you know, the early punk rock or, or like the glam coming out of England, you had to go to the big cities and, and go to the record stores there because a little place like Merced just wouldn't have it. So as we kind of pivot a little bit into really something that plays a huge role in this book, and that is drugs, specifically heroin, how much of a role and a big role at that it played in your life. If you're comfortable about it, can you talk a little bit about addiction and how addiction can really rule your world and sometimes ruin your world. It can be difficult for non-addicts to understand the power a drug like heroin has on one's life. The first time I think you said in your book is that you tried heroin was like in 1982 and you were like, oh my God, this yeah, is so like that. I think I was about 20 years old. Mm -hmm. When you talk about the power that it has over you, especially heroin, I've never been addicted to any other drugs, so I can't really speak on how they mm -hmm. affect you. But with heroin, it's like a double whammy. You know, you've got like the physical dependency, which means if you've reached a point of physical dependency and you're not getting your heroin, you're getting sick. 
And it's the most horrible sickness you can imagine. And it ties in with like this suicidal depression. That's all you can think about is you got to get more. You know, if you do more, you'll feel better. And it just consumes you. And <laughs> it, it doesn't take long before your whole life is just based around, you know, getting more. And that means figuring out ways to get money because it becomes very expensive. You know, when when you're first doing it, it's like $10 a day. You think, oh, well, that's nothing. You know, it progresses and pretty soon you're doing more. And it is every day. There's no vacation. There's no time off. And it adds up quickly. And pretty soon your whole life is just consumed with how do I get more money to get more and then getting more. And usually scoring is pretty dicey. You know, you're in bad neighborhoods or dealing with shady people, you know, and then you get loaded and then you're right back again. How do I get more? And it's just a constant search and scramble to get more. And um, it really does take over your life. Like, for example, people who are addicted to alcohol, they build up such a tolerance to it in terms of how much they start to consume, that they can consume a, a good amount of alcohol. Is that something similar with heroin? Like at first, it's like a small amount, and then it just starts to, you start to get a a bit tolerant to it and that you you require more right when you first start a little bit will you know will get you loaded and then mm -hmm. um after a little while that doesn't do it anymore you have to increase your dose and you're constantly chasing that feeling of being loaded and to do that you know your body just keeps uh, acclimatizing itself to the amount that you're doing so you just got to keep doing more and more and then i got to the point where i was my habit was like 150 dollars a day oh my God. and that's really unsustainable if you're not like a billionaire and so you're out you know doing crimes and hustling and and just doing whatever you can to, to get that money every day mm -hmm. i don't want to leapfrog too far into the story but it did land you in prison because of your heroin addiction. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the heroin itself, but it was what you were willing to do to get loaded, as you say. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. But let's, yeah. before we get to that, we should get to the Joneses because this is the other part of the story. It's about this band that you and your buddy Steve Olson kind of came up with, at least Steve Olson came up with the group's name. For those of you who are going to go on like Spotify or Apple Music looking for the Joneses music, you may run across a 70s era soul band with the same name. So I'm curious, I mean, you could talk, we'll talk about how the beginnings of the Joneses, but how did you not get a cease and desist order from any kind of attorney when you, when you, how did we, how did we manage to what? Not get a cease and desist order from an attorney with with the use of the the name the Joneses. Like were well, the Joneses we, disbanded at that point? The, the I'm pretty 70s sure they were. Yeah. I'm pretty okay. sure they were because we didn't start really making records and stuff until '82. Mm -hmm. As far as I know, they were a soul group out of Philadelphia in the '70s, and they had I think they had a couple of regional hits. I think one was called Sugar Pie Guy, something like that. But no, we never heard anything from anybody. Um, oh, okay. All right. Of course, we didn't know they existed either. You know, that was back in the days before the internet. So mm -hmm. we had no way of knowing that there was this soul group until much later. So the, the name itself is is kind of a play on drug addiction, right? Right. In a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So jonesing for something. Right. Yeah. You have say. the Joneses, you're jonesing yeah. for something, right? Or you have a, a basketball Jones or a heroin Jones or yeah. whatever Jones. Yeah. 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 Coming up with the Joneses, I know your influences because you spell them out in the book, were not necessarily punk rock, but rather, I would say, what is now classic rock, and then glam rock. So talk about your your influences that framed Jones's music. You know, when people would ask us at the very beginning, me and Steve Olson, what our band sounded like, we would tell them it was like if um, 
Eddie Cochran met the New York Dolls at Chuck Berry's house because <laughs> I was very influenced by the 50s records that my dad had around the house. And then me and Steve Olson were actually in rockabilly bands together before the Joneses. So we shared love for that kind of music. And then, you know, also with uh, the New York Dolls and uh, Mott the Hoople and stuff like that, of mm -hmm. course, the Rolling Stones, that's sort of the stuff we were influenced by. And especially at that time, a band that we listened to a lot was the Professionals, the sort of group that came out of the ashes of the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones and Paul Cook. A lot of people thought you were a punk band, right? I mean, there's a punk vibe to it, but it's you're not really a punk band. Uh, right. I don't think you ever des described yourself as that Never. To, to other people, but I'm sure that other people thought that you were though, right? Yeah, I just got, in fact, I just got a a thing from the Punk Rock Museum in Las Vegas asking me to donate some stuff to the museum, the Punk Rock Museum. And what's funny is we did uh, the compilation album that we did that Pillbox was originally on was put out by BYO, which was a, a hardcore punk sort of label. Because our guitar player, Steve Houston, had been in a punk band before, they thought we were punk. And then we did Pillbox and Graveyard Rock, and they said they got more hate mail for us than all the other bands together got fan mail. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and just so you know, the Joneses were not your first band. You had bands that you were involved with in high school. I think Slider was one of them. The Sin was another. Yeah. So you, yeah. you were playing. I've said this on the podcast as well, that like a lot of young music fans in high school, I wanted to be a musician too. So I started a band that lasted maybe two practices and then it all fell apart. So a lot of these high school bands, we say, yeah, I was in a band in high school. Sometimes they don't, you know, they don't last very long, like maybe two, three days. And then sometimes they last a few weeks. But uh, right, right. when we talked a little bit about the influence of K-San on your musical education, but when you moved down to the Los Angeles area, back to Orange County, really, you got to talk about a radio station that was big and had a huge footprint there. And that's KROQ, K-Rock in LA. Yeah. And yeah. they were for a time a place where new music could be heard from unsigned bands like the Joneses. So in 82, didn't you kind of like knock on, <laughs> on the back door of the studio to see if you can get your music played? Yeah, K-Rock, you know, in the late 70s, they were a little bit like K-Sound. They were kind of open format. And then as we got into the early 80s, they sort of became sort of a new wave. They played a lot of Depeche Mode and mm -hmm. sort of new wave synthesizer kind of stuff. But yeah, very, very popular, very big. But they were just starting to become that. The night that we finished recording our first 7-inch, um, I think we recorded the whole thing in one one evening. On the way home, we were listening to Rodney on the Rock, Rodney Bingenheimer's show on K-Rock. And we decided to drive by the studio and drop off a tape of what we just recorded. And so we knocked on the back door and, and Rodney answered the door himself. <laughs> and we handed him the tape and said, hi, we're the Joneses. Can you play this on your show? And uh, we were listening to him on the way home and he played it on his show. Which song did he play? Did he play Jonestown or Criminals in My Car? Uh, I think he played Criminals in My Car. That is a story that, because I've worked in radio for so many years, doesn't happen at all anymore. You can't go no. to a radio station and say, here's my tape or here's my MP3 or whatever. Can you, will you play it? Nope. They'll say, no, we don't, we don't do that. You'll have to get a label rep to talk to us. So the interesting thing about the Joneses is that from 82, and I believe from 82 to 84, you had five guitarists, two bass players, and two drummers rotate out. As yeah. So it was like a musical chairs thing. So really the only constant in the band was you. Yeah, that's and right. After, after Mitch, the drummer quit in, I think that was around 
Thanksgiving of 83, I was the only original member. And that was, you know, only about two years after the band started. But I think in the year of 1983, the band turned over twice. And there was just a lot happening. The band kept getting more and more popular. And it just seemed like a revolving door. People were coming and going. And it seemed like we had a good lineup. And then somebody would quit. And then we would have to teach them all the songs. And so it kind of... uh, kind of inhibited the songwriting because we were so busy teaching the new members the songs that there wasn't time to learn new ones. That's where I was saying to you before we started recording this, while I was reading your book, uh, one night I was reading in bed and I turned to my wife and I said, this guy can't catch a break. And I read her that line. I said, he's gone through five guitarists, two bass players, and two drummers in the space of two years. So it must be really tough to maintain that cohesive sound with the band when you're rotating people in and out. I mean, anytime a band makes a change, even an established band, and they bring somebody new in, it has an effect on the music, sometimes really positively, and sometimes it's like, yeah, it's not really working out. A couple of examples I can think of, or at least one right away, is when Keith Moon from The Who died and they brought in Kenny Jones, who was with Faces, that uh, the band sounded different. I mean, right. it was. It went from a, a crazy guy behind the kit who was just a genius at times to somebody who was sort of a traditional timekeeper and could keep the band in sort of metronomic time really well. So when you change out these band members so quickly with, with, with the Joneses, there had to have been points where you're like, I hope this works. God, I hope this works. <laughs> well, yeah, there was that. And, you know, the the, the good thing was that you know, I was the singer, I was the rhythm guitar player, I was the songwriter. So that was that was pretty constant. Mm-hmm. I picked people that sort of gravitated towards the band, so they kind of knew what it was about. And our music, I thought, was traditional enough that it wasn't hard for other players to get. You know, yeah. if they liked uh, basic rock and roll, they were going to like what the Joneses were doing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, you can listen if if you have the time or the or, or the interest. You can you know listen to the to the Joneses music as it sort of evolved over time. And that, part of that that was you know different people getting involved, and part of that was just you know my musical taste changing mm-hmm. as time went on. That's not uncommon either. Everybody has you know they don't want to be stuck in the same musical pattern unless you're acdc they seem to have been making the same album over and over for decades but uh, other bands tend to try to stretch out you did a show with the blasters on the east coast and to me this part of the story was when the band at least in that incarnation seemed to have a certain synergy they there was a real sort of tightness about it you got out to the East Coast by doing this sort of delivering vehicles. You pick them up in LA and you drive them out to the East Coast as, as a drop-off. I think there was a film in the 80s called The Hitcher, which was about a guy who was doing just that. And he picked up a hitchhiker and it was like this weird horror movie. But that well, was a way that you could get across the country relatively cheaply, right? Right, right. Yeah. They, and they pay you for, do they give you like a per diem for food and they, they pay for gas? No, they would, give you, uh, they would give you a full tank of gas. And mm-hmm. I think when you turn the car in uh, on the other side of the country, they would give you, it was either $50 or $150. And they gave you a time limit. I think it was 10 days. You had to mm-hmm. get back there and you weren't supposed to go off of the shortest route. There was all these restrictions, mm-hmm. but we didn't really pay attention to those. We knew how to unhook the odometer and... Um, so we would stop and do shows along the way. And you weren't supposed to have anything tied to the top of the car or transport things, but we had our amps tied to the top of the cars and we were breaking all the rules, but it worked well for us. Yeah. 
Because the stops along the way is where you're getting, you know, shows, you're picking up shows. And with that, you're also exposing folks to your music and, and growing your fan base beyond LA. So right, that's, right. that's, that's the whole idea about touring really back in LA in that music scene during the eighties, you guys were really popular in the LA music scene, but it seems like the, the labels were kind of scared of you. You were yeah. managed by a guy named Danny Sugarman who was trying to help you get signed, but things didn't work out as planned. Uh, he's known in the music industry, but for those who don't know the name, Tell us who he is, how the bidding war to sign you fell apart, and maybe you could read a passage from your book about Danny. Okay. Uh, well, Danny Sugarman was, as a teenager, I think he was like an errand boy for the doors. Mm -hmm. He just kept hanging around, ingratiating himself with the band. And after Jim died, he eventually became the doors manager, you know, managing their, their business interests because they were still selling a ton of records, even though Jim Morrison was dead. And so he became the doors manager. And he wrote a book called No One Here Gets Out Alive about Jim Morrison and the Doors. And Pretty it famous, sold a right? bunch of copies. It was yeah. a best-selling book, and he made a lot of money. He became sort of a man about town. His girlfriend was Mackenzie Phillips, who was John Phillips' daughter. And she had a, a sitcom in the 70s called One Day at a Time. Oh, yeah, with Valerie Bertinelli was in it. Right, right, yeah. right. And they were sort of a notorious couple. You know, they would they would have these really public episodes where they would be found passed out in the gutter and they would be fighting and stuff. And anyway, we came back from our second tour and we started getting a lot of good press in the L.A. Times and we were drawing big crowds. And Danny noticed that. And I think I may have said something in an interview that we were looking for management. Mm -hmm. And so he contacted us and told us that because the doors were on Electra and he was managing the doors, he had really good connections with people at Electra Records. He said he was sure he could get us a deal with Electra because the guy at Electra that was in head of A&R, Tom Zutat, loved the band. And with Danny managing us and Tom, the A&R guy at Electra, where he already had business connections, it seemed like a slam dunk. And it would have been a slam dunk, except Danny wanted to have a bidding war in order to get the most money possible. And maybe we would go with another label um, that would be offering more money or whatever. They were throwing around like a million dollars, which at that time was a huge amount of money. I and, still um, think it's a huge amount of money. I'd take yeah, a million yeah, bucks. Right. <laughs> and we never got that, but, yeah. but I, I would go to lunch with Danny and Tom Zutat and Tom Zutat would be laying out, okay, we're going to give you a monthly salary. You know, here's what we're going to pay. We don't want you to play. We just want you to rehearse and write songs. Mm -hmm. and you're going to get this much money every month. And, you know, I thought, wow, you know, I had, uh, I had hit the big time. I was 23 years old and I thought, you know, my, all my worries were over. I was going to be a rock star, a rich rock yeah. star. And, and yeah. that's the end of the story. The bidding war kind of fell apart. Danny made some bad decisions, sort of steered us the wrong way a couple times. He went to Mexico to finish his second book, Wonderland Avenue. And while he was there, I would go to the accountant's office to pick up our allowance from him. And he would send messages like, you guys should go in more of a Motley Crue direction, you know, more leather and chains. I was against that. But right. anyway, when Danny came back from his, his uh, trip in Mexico, it was over the Christmas holiday of 1984. And all the A&R guys at the labels had, it was like musical chairs. They all switched positions. And so Tom Zutat at Electra was no longer at Electra. He had moved to Geffen. And at that time, Geffen only had like Neil Diamond and Elton John. They weren't signing bands like the Joneses. We were a little too wild for them. Right, right. The guy that moved over to Elektra was Peter Philbin from CBS, who didn't like the Joneses. So Elektra was no longer a possibility. And the whole thing just sort of fell apart. 
And when that happened, Danny realized that he might have to do some actual managing and he just kind of walked away. Oh, so we were left there. Man. We were still drawing huge crowds, but now the labels wouldn't touch us because we had a bad reputation. And even just being hooked up with Danny was kind of a bad reputation because he was a known junkie. So it wasn't the best decision to go with him. And he just didn't handle it right. And uh, it just all fell apart. You know, that's another one of those so close moments. Yeah. It seemed like <laughs> so I'm reading this. I'm like, oh man, things are going to line up for them. Yeah, never right? happened. Never <laughs> happened. Yeah. So what did you read a, a passage from, from your book? And I'm sure it's about Danny Sugarman, but uh, it'll give listeners a flavor of what's in store. Okay. There's another reason Danny liked managing us. He and his girlfriend, Mackenzie Phillips had quite a public problem with chemicals, but now Danny was claiming he was clean and had to keep his newfound good reputation intact. He knew that Joneses had a reputation around town for being junkies, so one day he asked if I could score him some heroin. I told him I could. He let me know that he would do it himself, but he couldn't risk getting caught scoring or anybody finding out that he was using it again. He had this beautiful mansion on Sunset Plaza Drive just off Kings Road above Sunset Boulevard in the Hollywood Hills. This house had a pool that hung over a cliff, and at night the view of L.A. all lit up was amazing. I would drive up to Danny's house, get his money, and Scott Franklin, the Jones's bass player, and I would go down to 6th and Union near downtown L.A. to score for him. We told him the bags of heroin were $25 each. He would give me $100, but we could actually get 12 bags of heroin for $100. So we would deliver Danny his four bags and have eight bags for ourselves. <laughs> it worked out great for us and Danny as well because he kept doing it. One day Danny called me and told me that Iggy Pop and Charles M. Young, a writer for Rolling Stone magazine, were at his house and they wanted to score. Scott and I drove up to Danny's house and I went to get the money. Danny opened the door. I said hi to Iggy and Charles and Scott and I took off down the hill to go score. When we got to Six in Union just off downtown, Scott told me he knew where to get the good dope and had me park the car at the end of the street. He disappeared over the crown of the road. Union Street was a bunch of brownstone looking apartment buildings with all kinds of shady looking people hanging around outside. I sat, waited for Scott as it usually took just a couple of minutes before he was back and we were on our way but not this time. I sat, waited, waited, and waited for 45 minutes, but it seemed like forever. I didn't want to desert Scott, but I knew something had gone wrong, and I took off. When I got home, I called the jail, and sure enough, they had Scott, who later told me he went into the building he usually had the best luck with. He started up the stairs, scored, and was heading back down when he was confronted and chased by undercover LAPD detectives. Scott threw the dope out a window. They caught him, roughed him up a bit, searched him, and couldn't find any dope. They told him they knew why he was there, so where was the dope? Scott said there was no dope, so one of the cops reached into his jacket, pulled out a baggie full of heroin balloons, picked one out, and said, this must be yours. Once I knew Scott was in jail, I called Danny. And since we had been gone for hours at this point, he was anxious to get his dope. I told him that Scott had been arrested for scoring for him, and he needed to get him out of jail. He said there was nothing he could do and had to stay out of it for the sake of his reputation. I told Danny if he didn't cough up the money to get Scott out right away, I was going to call my friend Pleasant Gaiman. His story would be in the next L.A. Lottie Daw, a column in the L.A. Weekly, and his cover would be blown. He agreed to bail Scott out. I drove to see my friend Billy Persons, the rock and roll bail bondsman, who told me it would take $250 to get Scott sprung. I had to drive back up to Danny to pick up the money and back up to Billy to get Scott out. 
Danny never asked us to score for him again. So that's uh, one of my Danny Sugarman stories. <laughs> Man. A little strong uh, like, like you said, the addiction will make you do things that you're just like, oh boy. But yeah. it, it's interesting to see how much heroin plays a role, not only in your story, but in the music industry at the time. So it seemed like quite a few people were were hooked on this stuff or at least using it. My theory is for most people anyway, that, you know, if you're a musician, you're on stage and you've got a lot of adrenaline flowing and stuff and you get off stage and you want to sort of relax and that's a really good way to do it. You know, you get loaded, you know, you can relax and kick back. And then, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. if you're a musician, you have, you know, a lot of downtime or whatever. And so you start doing it more and then eventually you get physically dependent and then, um, it's not a matter of wanting it anymore. It's you have to have it. One of the bands that you don't particularly like, actually it was a couple of bands, but they became <laughs> a super band, is Guns N' Roses. You're not yeah. a fan of LA Guns or Hollywood Rose. And it seems like the guitarist for Guns N' Roses Slash is no fan of yours. So why is that? I mean, I know that sometimes there's rivalries between bands, but you just never took a liking to these guys. They seemed like they were trying to ride your coattails for a while. Well, there was that, and I didn't like them even before that. I used to work at this rehearsal studio mm -hmm. that was run by Nikki Beat, and uh, Hollywood Rose and L.A. Guns would both rehearse there. And I'm just not a fan of that kind of music to start with. You know, I just don't really like metal, and they were just kind of heavy, and I thought Axel sounded like Janis Joplin. I just The music made my skin crawl. They started coming to Jones's shows, and the uh, you know, next thing you know, they start sort of dressing like us and acting like us. And uh, the LA Weekly even called them Jones's clones for a while. <laughs> and um, <laughs> but, yeah, they were very, uh, very persistent and very driven. You know, they um, they would go to almost any lengths to to get where they wanted to go. And I, you know, I you have to applaud them for that. Yeah, as much yeah. as I don't like the music. Yeah, they would call and they would beg our guitar player, Johnny Nation, to put put us on a bill, put them on a bill with us. And I kept saying, no, we're not going to do it because I knew they would pull some kind of stunt and you know, try to cash in on our drawing a big crowd and sort of ruin mm -hmm. it for us. We did one show at a place called Rogie's on Hollywood Boulevard. And at the end of the set, Axie Nizzle jumped up on stage before they were ever anybody uninvited and started singing along. I think we're playing Jumpin' Jack Flash. And I thought that was really cheeky, you know, to... You know, yeah. jump up on our stage in the middle, you know, at the end of our set during our encore and jump up there like that. I just thought it was really bad manners. And then Johnny finally succumbed to their begging and we put him on a show with us at the Troubadour. And sure enough, they brought out these topless dancers. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> God, who does that? You know, who brings topless right. dancers out? But, you know, again, they were willing to do anything to, to win over the crowd. And eventually they did, you know, and they became the, the biggest act in the world there for a minute. They were just really driven. They certainly were. Speaking of the Troubadour, you met Jack Wagner there, the actor. <laughs> and that made me laugh because, okay, so I'll admit, I didn't watch General Hospital, but I did, I did, watch, I did watch Melrose Place when he was on there. I know him from that. And that smarmy oh. smile that he does... I could just picture it. And you're at the bar. He turns, hi, I'm Jack Wagner. I'm on General Hospital. Right. And I have a number five hit or something like that in the country I, right now. I was like, who? <laughs> who are you? My, Why are you talking to me? <laughs> I told my wife that one because she likes Melrose Place too. I said, he met Jack Wagner in this bar and he didn't know who the hell he was. Well, that was before Melrose Place. And that was yeah. 
That was actually after he was had been on General Hospital. But when I watched General Hospital, it was before he was on. So I didn't I didn't know who he was. I found yeah. out later. Oh, Jack Wagner. Okay, that's it. But I didn't know him from Adam. I thought he was just some gay guy at the bar at the funeral <laughs> trying to pick up on me. You know. Right. <laughs> But it's just like he's working the room, you know. He's like anybody. Hi, I'm Jack Wagner. I'm right, right, right. Hospital. Like I'm supposed to be impressed. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So let's uh, let's move on to the actual recorded music from the Joneses, and there are a couple of songs that you've been so gracious to say that we can feature in total. One of them is Pillbox. Talk about that song. This is one that you're pretty well known for. Yeah, it's actually, um, of all the Joneses songs, by far the most popular, and I still haven't figured out why. I wrote that song when I was a teenager in high school. I think it was the second song I ever wrote. And so I kind of feel like, you know, has it all been downhill since then? I mean, I can't write another one that good. But I just always thought that the words didn't make sense, and I thought there were too many chord changes. I thought it sounded a little too busy. It was a song I wrote when I was about 16, and it was about, you know, sort of comparing girls to drugs. And at that time, I really didn't know that much about girls or drugs. So no wonder the words don't make a lot of sense. But that's sort of the story of Pillbox. And in the book, you have an image of the handwritten lyrics from it looked like a a notebook. And you've just got it's called Out of My Pillbox. And then you have the lyrics on here. So let's play Pillbox and enjoy that. song that we wanted to feature, or at least I want to feature, is one called Black Cat Bone. Talk about that one. Black Cat Bone, that's actually the first song I ever wrote or recorded in an open G tuning on the guitar. 
And the way that came about was, you know, I'd been a big fan of the Rolling Stones, especially the stuff they did in the 70s. Mm You know, when I was trying to learn their songs, I could never get the guitar to sound right. And I couldn't understand why not. And then I read this interview with Keith Richards. I think it was in Guitar Player Magazine. And he started talking about this open G tuning. And so I checked that out. And what do you know? Like all of a sudden I could make my guitar sound like the Rolling Stones. You know, they hit this open G chord and, and the sort of other chords that go along with it. And so I wrote Black Cat Bone with this open G tuning. And then um, it's actually the, the song is a story about this trip that the Joneses went to Las Vegas. Most of it's a like a true story. You know, there's some uh, artistic license that I took, <laughs> but it's kind of the story of a, a Joneses trip to Las Vegas. Now for the non-musicians out there, there's standard tuning. And then this open G tuning is something you do, you tighten the strings or you loosen the strings. So tell us what that means. Like, if you know the guitar, you know the chord that's closest to you, or the string that's closest to you is the fattest one. So that's an E string. Is that the string that's tuned to a G? The way it works is, and Keith Richards does it a little differently. He uses mm-hmm. only five strings on his guitar. So he gets rid of the, the fat, what you call the bass string. Mm-hmm. So he just has five strings. I would keep the bass string on and tune it down to a D. Okay. Um, so it'd go from E down to a D. The A string, I would tune down to a G. The D and G string, D, G, and B strings would stay the same. And then the mm-hmm. high E, I would tune down to a D. And okay. when you strum it like that, with it, it's a, it just plays a G chord. Now, if you were in standard tuning and just strum the guitar with with you know without fretting any of the strings, it would sound mm-hmm. horrible. But if you do it in open G tuning, you have a open you open tuned, you have a G chord right there. And so you're able to bar chord play bar chords with just one finger, and then you can kind of do these um I'm not sure what they're called, but they're kind of like suspensions or something with your other fingers and where you get that, it's a real obvious Rolling Stones riff. Keith Richards got it from like the old blues guys down in the Delta, you know, the early, you know, electric blues or maybe Mm -hmm. even before electric, the acoustic blues. From the blues, he kept that open G and that was the kind of the secret, secret sauce for the Rolling Stones sound. And then you're like, I love this. How do I get it? Why am I not getting it out of my guitar? And then you write in guitar player, like. Oh, that's what he did. Ah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. And it was the same thing when I learned to play slide guitar. I I couldn't figure out what was going on, why it sounded so horrible when I tried to play slide guitar. And the difference is with slide, most guys turn it down to an open D tuning. Mm-hmm. And um, like Ron Wood in the face is uh, a lot of that is open D. And uh, the notes just kind of line themselves up and it, it, you get that sort of authentic blues, classic rock kind of sound. It's, it's all, all in the tuning. Speaking of classic rock, you cover what is now a classic rock song or a classic song, which is Crocodile Rock by Elton John. You talked earlier in the interview about how you were, probably still are, an Elton John fan. So is that how that came about? Just because you liked Elton John, you thought it'd be fun to do a uh, a cover of this song. Yeah, it was partly that, you know, when I was 12 or 13, Elton John was very big at like 73, 74. He was Mm -hmm. huge. Like I said, I always loved fifties music. Crocodile rock is kind of a retro sounding like Del Shannon runaway or something like that. Me and my brother had the 45, probably 1972 or three or whenever it came out. And then when the Joneses got together, I just thought, you know, that would be a great song to sort of rock it out a little bit. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of make it our own. The reason we recorded it more than once is because I thought that was going to sort of be the song that was going to break it for us. And it just never did. But I always thought that was a, a really clever idea was to cover Crocodile Rock. Let me ask you a little bit about some of the songs. I'm looking at 
a compilation of all your records. It's called Criminal History Revisited, The Joneses. So 24 songs, some of them are demos, some of them are live, but just go by the titles and tell me a little bit about them. So one of them is Tits and Champagne. What's that about? (laughs) Well, uh, it's actually just kind of a fictional story about a girl that um, grows up in the out in the country someplace and she she moves to the big city and becomes a porn star and all that. And the way that uh, that we came up with the title, I was sitting at Johnny Nation's house one day and he was watching this porno movie. And there was this porn actor named Peter North, who was really popular in the 80s. He was complaining, saying, oh, you know, people think being a porn star, they think it's all just tits and champagne, but, you know, (laughs) it's a rough life. And when I heard that, I just thought, wow, what a great name for a song. But, you know, you were mentioning Criminal History Revisited. Actually, Mm -hmm. last year, a record label reissued all of our stuff on three albums. It's called Joneson Discography Volumes 1, 2, and 3. And those three records have everything that Jones has ever recorded on it. Nice, nice. Ms. 714. Is 714 an area code? It's an area code for Orange County. It's also ah, okay. the, All right. the number that was stamped on Quaaludes. Um, <laughs> and so really? it was about a girl from Orange County that took too many Quaaludes. <laughs> okay. I shouldn't laugh at this, but it's just, you know. <laughs> well, these... It's meant to be funny. It's not, you know. <laughs> right. And you said that 123 is a cover. Correct. Yeah. Who originally did it? I don't know this song. Well, there's there's some controversy about who wrote it. That band I was talking about, the professionals did it with Steve Jones and Paul Cook. Mm-hmm. And also there was a San Francisco punk rock band called The Avengers that did oh, it. Yeah. They, yeah. they called it Second to None, but it's the uh. same song. And see, Steve Jones produced their first EP. And so there's a question about, did he give it to the Avengers or did he steal it from the Avengers? It's never really been cleared up, but it's a great song. I love both versions, the Avengers and the Professionals. White and Pretty. Must be about a girl? Uh, no, it's about heroin, actually. Is it really? Oh, my yeah. God. I mean, you can flip a coin on my songs and... Uh, yeah. You know, half the time you're going to be right, but usually the ones that sound like they're about girls are about drugs, and mm-hmm. the ones that sound like they're about drugs are about girls. About I try girls, to make- right? You're, you're just like topsy turvy. That's what you're doing. You're doing a topsy turvy. Yeah. So finally, the the last part of the story, which I think we should probably get to, is how did you end up robbing a bank and becoming a federal inmate? Oh boy. Well, after being a heroin addict for about ten years, I, I felt like I had had enough. I decided I needed to quit. I was sort of at the bottom of the pit or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I hit rock bottom. I was trying to get into this methadone clinic down in Orange County, and they had this deal where you had to, there was a waiting list. You had to call every night to find out if you were going to be able to be intake the next morning. And so for about two weeks, I was calling every night, and they were just telling me to call back the next day. And finally, on a Thursday, they said, okay, come in the next morning, which would have been a Friday morning. And I didn't have a car. It was about six miles from where I was staying to the methadone clinic. So I had to be there at six in the morning. So I got up really early and walked the six miles. Yeah, I was dope sick already. You know, I sat down and filled out all the paperwork and I was ready to get my methadone dose. And the nurse came in and said, sorry, the doctor called in sick. You're going to have to come back on Monday. I said, come on, that's three days. I'm never going to make it for three days without, you know, any dope. And she said, sorry, there's nothing we can do. And so I started walking back towards where I was staying, which was also right near my connections house, my heroin connection, you know, feeling sicker by the minute. And, you know, I tried calling some people to loan me some money and I couldn't get a hold of anybody. And I finally, I sat down in, in front of this bank at the corner of Ball Road and Anaheim Boulevard in Anaheim. 
in the months leading up to that, my heroin connection were these two lesbians that had escaped from a halfway house that were convicted bank robbers. And they were trying to get me to, to do some bank robberies with them. And they kept explaining to me, it's, you know, it's really easy. You just do this, this, and this. And they wanted me because I had no criminal history. I'd never been arrested before. And so the cops didn't know who I was or anything. I just kept telling them, no, that's not my style. You know, I'm not going to rob a bank. Right. And then um, I decided I was going to go in and rob that bank. And then right before I got up to do it, there was a car accident at the intersection there. And I thought, you know, now's the perfect time. The cops are going to be busy with this accident. They're they're never going to be able to respond. But had I thought about it a minute, I would have realized there was probably hundreds of Anaheim police officers and Orange County sheriffs and FBI agents that had nothing better to do than respond to a bank robbery. I went in and robbed the bank, and I, I, I got arrested about 45 minutes later. You took like about $700, shoved it into your pants and wherever you, other pockets or wherever you could do it. And it was you went, $1,050, and, you, and, and yeah, I shoved it in the crotch of my pants. Well, you were jonesing for heroin, so the first thing you did was go to your heroin dealer, right? right. To get to, to score. Because you were sick. Like you said, you were dope sick. And and that, to me, if we could do a little callback to earlier in the interview where you talked about how strong an addiction is, especially heroin, that you're feeling horrible. You, I mean, I can't even imagine what the withdrawal feels like, but it's, it's got to like be so- You feel like you're dying. Yeah, yeah, you feel like you're dying, and you know- what will make you feel better? And mm-hmm. so you're just consumed with this desire, I guess, to, to do some. And you'll, you will, I mean, I, I drew the line at a couple things sexually anyway, but you know, some people will do any, literally anything right, you know, to right. feel better. Mm-hmm. And for the, for the bank robbery, you did three years in federal prison, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I will leave the reader to read those sections of that. <laughs> and uh, the book is guilty. My Life as a Member of the Joneses, a Heroin Addict, a Bank Robber, and a Federal Inmate by Jeff Drake. Jeff, thank you so much for being on the Planet LP podcast. I will put a link on the Planet LP website to Hozak Books. I believe if you order directly from the publisher, an author gets more of the percentage of the sale than, say, Amazon or if you go to the Barnes & Noble site, right? Yeah, I think or that's if, you, if you want um, a signed book, you can order it directly from me. I'm on Facebook, and I'll sign one to you and send it out, and then I get all the money. Perfect. That's, that's even better. So it's yeah. been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ted. It was fun. And that'll close out this episode of the Planet LP podcast. Stick around, dear listener, because I will be playing Black Cat Bone by the Joneses. Until next time, thanks again for listening. Take care, everyone.